0: Hey there, welcome to the Creative Classroom Podcast. I'm your host, John Spencer. I'm a former middle school teacher, current college professor, and I am passionate about seeing teachers transform their classrooms into bastions of creativity and wonder. And so on this podcast, I share ideas and strategies. I share frameworks and uh, talk to experts. I talk about the things that worked for me, but also those big epic fails that I've made along the way all because I truly believe that teachers play a profound role in helping students reach their creative potential. And today we're gonna talk about this idea of creativity and skill development, and really two opposing, but I would argue complementary approaches to how we um, improve in our creative skills, and actually outside of just creativity, how we improve in our skills in general. So I wanna talk about these two opposing forces that I actually think can work in tandem really well. And one is called deliberate practice. The other is called deliberate play. So for the last year, I've been working on a project called Launch Language. It includes writing prompts with short term and long term writing, grammar practice where students can systematically move through verb tenses and and learn all about the structure of language, uh, leveled readers, opportunities to practice listening and speaking. I even created my own logo and my mascot called CommuniCat. It's this cat astronaut who uses a lot of feline based puns. I'm not going to tell you what he's doing right now, but you get the idea. Um, And I have shared a little preview about who CommuniCat is on my uh, social media. So if you follow me on Instagram, you've probably seen that. Um, But I share this because while the main focus is empowering multilingual uh, multilingual learners, it's a hard thing for me to say, um, the concept of ELD, or English Language Development, is, is really meant to be universal. So my goal in designing this is to create something that's accessible to all students. So. That's kind of the background. And it's been a lot of fun for me to tap into my past experience in teaching ELL, ESOL, ELD, whatever acronym you you choose to use, um, to create something practical for teachers, but also fun for students. In other words, I want students to play with language. And I realized that the word play here might sound a bit odd, especially with something like grammar. I mean, that's supposed to be all about rules, right? But as a former ELL teacher, I found that play was a strategic way for students to take necessary creative risks. I told you it would tie into creativity, right? Um, if you've ever learned a new language, you've probably noticed how scary it can feel. At the same time, the only way you improve is through practice, feedback, reflection, and then more practice, feedback, and reflection. It's why people who spend a full year in another country will often learn a language quick uh, more quickly than if they stayed put in their you know country of origin or where they're living at the time. There's something about that immersion process that works. But this process of making mistakes can feel embarrassing, and even scary because of something called the affective filter. Now the affective filter is a concept developed by Stephen Krashen highlighting the emotional and psychological barriers that impact language learning. This metaphorical filter refers to the learner's emotional states. So things like anxiety, your motivation, your self-confidence, just how you're feeling in the moment. And this filter shapes how we learn a new language. I like to imagine it like an air filter with emotions. And uh, if the filter is higher then less of the language actually gets there. I don't think that's how Stephen Krashen really, you know, wanted us to imagine it, but that's sort of how I view it. But when the uh, affective filter is low, learners are more receptive, allowing for greater language acquisition. So um, you could also imagine it almost like um, the gradient on Photoshop, right? If it's at 100%, you can't see anything, but if it's down at like 5%, you see most of the stuff there. So you can kind of think about it like that. Um, So in that sense, it could be, I guess, a little bit like a lens filter. And this right here, this affective filter, this is where play comes in. When students play, they experience a more relaxed, engaging, intrinsically motivating environment. With play, students have a greater sense of autonomy and control, and by integrating play into this process, this entire learning process, students are more likely to feel comfortable, motivated, confident, all of those things that will reduce their anxiety, decrease their resistance to learning, and overall just reduce the affective filter. So in a play-based setting, The focus on exploration, creativity, social interaction, those ultimately will reduce the stress of learning a new language. And honestly will help allow students to feel more comfortable making mistakes. When students are less worried about judgment when they feel more supported, they are more open to receiving and processing a new language input. Again, that affective filter is lower. So play is one of the best zones in terms of reducing the affective filter and learning a new language. And so for this reason, as I d- designed you know, all these different resources, I created language games like scrambled idioms where Groups have to figure out the meaning and the context of idioms. It's why I included creative writing, student choice, play-based activities, all kinds of different Socratic seminars. These various things that, yes, have structure, but also encourage a sense of play with the language. At the same time, though, if we simply say, go play with language, it can feel so unstructured to students that they'll hit what's called cognitive overload and they won't be able to focus. It creates a lot of what they call extraneous um, cognitive load. The choice would backfire, students would feel overwhelmed. The truth is kids need structure. They need systematic lessons with direct instruction. They need opportunities to focus on targeted skills. And for that reason, as I'm designing these launch language resources, I focus on this overlap of deliberate practice and deliberate play. So here's the difference between deliberate practice and deliberate play. Um, Let's start with deliberate play. In 1990, psychologist Anders Ericsson, I think that's how you say his name, um, said that we can master nearly any complex skill through a process of deliberate practice. This was popularized, by the way, by Malcolm Gladwell, who wrote about the 10,000-hour rule in the book Outliers, and it's actually a lot more complicated than 10,000 hours. It depends on the, you know, prior knowledge that someone brings into a task. It depends on what you're actually learning and how complex that is. How many different, you know, moving parts there is. Uh, there's a difference between learning how to skate on a skateboard versus how to do a kickflip, right? There's a difference between Learning, you know, um, how to paint a realistic, you know, painting versus how to hold a paintbrush. Like there, there are varying degrees to what we do. Um, but this concept of deliberate practice has become very popular. We see it in sports, in art, in music, in learning languages, in the corporate world, in schools, in in parenting circles, and while that's important there's this other side which is deliberate play so that's deliberate uh, practice if you want to take a deeper dive into deliberate play there's a great chapter in adam grant's recent book hidden potential that covers this but i want to make the distinction deliberate play is a different approach than deliberate practice so deliberate practice often focuses on extrinsic motivation with a focus on a measurable goal It's based on hard work and dedication, but deliberate play focuses, instead of on extrinsic, it focuses on intrinsic motivation, where the process is meant to be, well, more enjoyable. It often embeds key skills into games or challenges, leading to positive emotions, and that then allows the learning to stick. Again, that affective filter goes down. Um, Deliberate Practice tends to emphasize a singular pr- approach to skill development. And there will even be rigid rules, tight criteria stating exactly how to do something. So imagine, you know, doing a baseball swing, for example, and, and focusing only on an exercise involving your elbow. Deliberate play, on the other hand, emphasizes flexibility. You're encouraged to find your own path, or if you're Fleetwood Mac, you could go your own way, using multiple methods to develop a skill. This allows for creative risk-taking. It allows for mistakes, experimentation. It is inefficient, but it is highly effective. Deliberate practice focuses on isolating technical skills through drills and repetition. So again, it's isolation, extrinsic motivation. The focus is precision. By contrast... Deliberate play is more holistic. And you typically do activities that involve connecting skills to one another and sometimes connecting them in an unusual or creative way. I wanna point out that deliberate play can be highly structured and even linear. So in making these resources, there are still rules and structures and things like that. Games often have rules. The key idea, though, is that the method in the game is often flexible. So you have a lot of autonomy and control in terms of how you do things. With deliberate practice, the learner receives immediate correction, but deli- deliberate play, instead of always correcting you in the moment, will often involve a delayed correction where you reflect on your learning and you plan a new approach after you've reflected through a set. So you're not gonna interrupt someone during their game to correct them. Note that both approaches are necessary for deeper learning. The key is to be intentional. By combining deliberate practice and deliberate play, we can take our learning to the next level. So I think it's key to recognize when do we use both of these approaches. Well, deliberate uh, practice Deliberate practice is often the path to mastery. So this is great when focusing on mastering technical skills. Um, deliberate practice is often what it takes to get from that like 95% to 100% level of overcoming plateaus. Um, it's really good for you know preparing for competitive environments and it's also really good at the very beginning of a skill when you're learning something for the first time and you need a lot of early, immediate feedback. So it can be a powerful way to kind of give you that feedback. It doesn't have to be dreary, right? Deliberate practice itself can be fun. And what we can do is gamify deliberate practice. So what we're gonna do here is um, create Aspects of gamification, often things that that would come from video games, that's one of the best metaphors to think about, and apply that to your skill practice. So, doing things like making it easy to start, so creating a low barrier of entry, Um, creating levels for yourself where you hit benchmarks and move up the levels, Um, doing badges, uh, celebrations, progress bars where you see how well you're progressing, creating at instant moments of, of feedback, creating little scorecards, there's all kinds of options that we can do in terms of gamifying the entire skill practice. And again, so this is deliberate practice, but we're using elements of gamification, As a reading intervention teacher, I used to say, you know, kids should read for the sake of fun. Reading is rewarding when there's no reward for reading. We shouldn't be using this extrinsic motivation, which is really what this is, this gamification process. But the truth is some tasks are, well, repetitive. They're systematic and they're even a little boring. Um, That's how I felt about phonics work, right? No kid shows up to school saying like, hey, I really wanna know about the silent E today. Um, But when we added these elements of gamification, especially badges and goal setting and, and things like that, what we found is that students got really excited about those aspects of reading while still at the same time reading for fun. These weren't mutually exclusive. They weren't pitted against each other because we were using a playful approach for the reading, which was you know for fun, the silent reading, and then we were using a deliberate play or a practice approach for phonics work, and then we would have some little challenges that incorporated elements of skill practice into little challenges that students did. So I think the key thing is to recognize when deliberate play works well, when deliberate practice works well, and to be honest, some of the things that are kind of boring. Um, They work really well with deliberate practice, but we can make them less boring by gamifying. Now, what about deliberate play? Deliberate play is the path toward joyful exploration. So this path is all about sustainability, lifelong learning, ultimately going to the very end, not giving up. It's really focused on you're going to work hard because you find it fun to do, not you're going to work hard because there's a reward for it or an, I should say an extrinsic reward for it. So deliberate play is a little less structured and more intrinsically focused. It emphasizes enjoyment, exploration, connectivity, those kinds of ideas. Um, it often allows for collaboration rather than being fully individual. When would we use deliberate play? Well, for fostering creativity and innovation. So allowing students to write, design, entrepreneurship, Deliberate play um, allows for that divergent thinking. And so any kind of skill where we want students to be innovative and creative, deliberate play works better in those moments than deliberate practice. Um, If our goal is to get kids to love the learning process, deliberate play is great for that. Um, If we want students to connect socially and emotionally to grow, to develop some of those critical soft skills, deliberate play is often the best zone for that. If we're doing project-based learning, it sort of takes an element of deliberate play. It works really well. If you want integration of skills, right, where you are combining this skill with that skill together, then deliberate play is fantastic for the integration of skill. There's a great example of Steph Curry, who plays for my favorite team, the Golden State Warriors, and he played a game of 21 to grow his footwork and improve, and it was a game. He improved his footwear, foot, no, footwear footwork by playing a game rather than doing a repetitive drill over and over and over again. I want to point out that this process of play often involving games is not the same as what I just mentioned before about gamification. Adam Grant actually makes a really good distinction. He says, people will hear that and say, all right, gamification, are we gonna take a bunch of boring tasks at work and try to convince people they're fun by adding bells and whistles to them? The answer is no. Deliberate play is actually about changing the learning or the practice itself to make it more enjoyable as opposed to just adding some features to trick you into enjoying it. Now, I'm not sure I agree with the term trick you. If you know that something is being gamified, I actually think that that's a good thing. And there's some real positives to it. So I think in the end, what we can do is blend these concepts together. We can use them in tandem. We can use them uh, as complementary approaches. And what it looks like is it might be that at the early stage of a, a new skill, you'll Um, allow students to engage in play. And then as you get better and improve at things, you need to get to a higher level, you'll shift into deliberate practice. It may be that to learn a new skill for the first time, you start with deliberate practice and, and really just hone in on those skills. And then you apply those to deliberate play. And maybe in a single lesson, you sort of ping pong back and forth between some moments of deliberate play and some moments of deliberate practice. There's a lot of different ways that we can do it. The key thing as educators is that we know our students best and we know what excites them, what drives them, what gets them going. And for that reason, we can incorporate elements of both deliberate play and deliberate practice and be intentional and strategic about it in a way where we can maximize the benefits of both approaches. It's not that one is better or worse than others, it's that these can both complement each other and help our students reach new levels of learning. Hey, thank you so much for listening. Would you do me a favor? If you enjoy this podcast, would you leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Amazon or wherever it is that you get your podcast. Again, thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day and go out and make something awesome.